Welcome to the GermD podcast. To my knowledge, the only podcast dedicated to inherited metabolic disease. In fortnightly episodes, I bring you author interviews discussing recent journal content and asking authors to take me through the stories behind their work. There are now over 80 interview episodes and 30 shortcasts, so there's bound to be something to tickle your fancy. So please check out our back catalogue, but not before listening to this latest episode, looking at pregnancy outcomes in porphyria. Hello there. Now, it's always inevitable that we are going to revisit old topics, but this podcast sort of brings two different topics together because we're discussing not just porphyrias, but also um, adult metabolic disease, and notably something that we're seeing more and more as we get adults with metabolic disease, and that's pregnancy. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Daphne Vassiliou from the Porphyria Centre in Sweden at the Karolinska University Hospital to discuss her recent paper, Maternal and Fetal Outcomes in Acute Hepatic Porphyria, a Swedish National Cohort Study. Daphne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm so glad for this opportunity. So I mentioned that we've spoken about the porphyrias before. We've done a couple of quite recent episodes, in fact. And I'd certainly refer listeners back to those for a bit more background. But since this episode focuses on pregnancy outcomes and the hepatic porphyrias, can I perhaps ask you for the essentials? What would you want someone like me, or as a paediatrician, maybe I don't need to know so much about pregnancy and porphyria, but what would you like a clinician to know about this group of disorders? Well, just to cover the basic background, the porphyrias are a group of rare disorders, and it's all about abnormalities and the pathway for making heme. It's usually impaired function, but not always. That's why we use that word abnormalities. And another thing that's good to know when one says porphyrias is that it's a group of disorders that are very, very heterogeneous in their clinical manifestations. So to put some order in this complicated issue, we divide them into the acute porphyrias, and the cutaneous or skin porphyrias. And the acute porphyrias, which is what my work is about, they have mainly symptoms from the nervous system. And the cutaneous have mostly skin fragility, photosensitivity. And just to make matters more interesting, of course, there are porphyrias that combine those two clinical manifestations. So it's all very interesting. And it's all about heme. And heme is a component in many proteins and is produced in all human tissues. But bone marrow and liver are the main heme production sites. And heme production in the liver is necessary for the function of hemoproteins that are involved in so many cellular processes like electron transfer and drug and steroid metabolism and management of oxidative stress. So in the acute porphyrias, to just narrow it down to what this is going to be about, the acute porphyrias are about a disequilibrium problem in the heme production in the liver cells. And it's also important for us to clarify as clinicians that individuals with acute porphyria, many of them will be asymptomatic during their lifetime. And others will present with episodes or with neurological, what we call neurovisceral manifestations, what is referred to as the acute porphyria attack. And acute porphyria attack involves abdominal pain, sensory loss, neuropathy, paresis, hypertension, hyponatremia, increased heart rate, seizures. Those are all parts of the complex thing called the acute porphyria attack. Now, what is interesting and why maternal health is so intriguing is that the acute porphyrias are inherited in an autosomal dominant pattern, which is unusual for inherited disorders. So there's an equal number of men and women that have acute porphyria, but there is a clear female 
predominance in the group of individuals with acute porphyria that actually manifest disease, that have clinical symptoms. And that is empirical knowledge. It has always been like that. We know that women are more sick than men. And the fact that prepubertal children and women past menopause very rarely experience acute attacks. And the observation that many women with porphyria have symptoms uh, in correlation to menstruation, pregnancy, postpartum, strengthened the hypothesis that there is a connection between hormonal fluctuations and the pathophysiology of acute porphyria. So I think this is very, very interesting. And as another thing about the background for understanding the assessment of a patient with porphyria, the idea is that the accumulation of heme precursors, like that the cell is trying to produce heme and can't because of some genetic deficiency or abnormality, and the cell accumulates precursors to heme. And those substances, porphyrbolinogen and aminolevulinic acid, are considered to be disease mediators and disease markers and are implicit in the pathways that result in porphyria disease manifestations. Thank you. So it's obviously quite a complicated group of disorders and we have this issue around sometimes they're not presenting. Something I discussed with Professor Sphere Sandberg was around these different definitions of latent disease and, and certainly we have people who have the gene change but don't have disease. So it does become very complicated. There's certainly an increasing amount of evidence on inherited metabolic disease in adults. And I suppose with that, inevitably, there comes a need to know more about pregnancy in inherited metabolic disease. How did you go about trying to improve our knowledge specifically in the acute hepatic porphyrias? My position is I work as an endocrinologist in Stockholm and we live in a country with uh, actually the highest incidence of acute intermittent porphyria, which is one of the acute hepatic porphyrias in the world. And that privilege is due to a so-called genetic founder effect in the northern regions of Sweden. It just so happens that we have a relatively large number of individuals with this diagnosis in our country. And I also had the opportunity to train with specialists and senior colleagues that themselves had decades of experience in clinical assessment and treating individuals with acute porphyria. And if you're interested in something, then the patients will come to you or be referred to you. So I came into contact with patients with this diagnosis quite early. And when it comes to rare disorders, as you probably know, is true for all rare disorders. If you take care of the porphyria, but you also become the patient's GP. And we, we are consulted in all aspects of care and pregnancy and childbirth. And we were aware of the older reports that because of this connection, I referred to, to porphyria and hormonal changes. And there are lots of case reports published and empirical knowledge of women getting very, very sick. And there was even mortality during pregnancy and birth. And some of our patients, we knew that their older relatives, they were advised against having children, actually. And at the same time, I mean, the disease is so widespread in some areas of Sweden, that means that it was fine to have children, so to say. And we also saw that many women could actually, despite recommendations, they went ahead and, and had children, it went okay. So at the same time, that resulted in the opposite. We have patients that are asymptomatic and they were not offered any kind of monitoring or prenatal care because they had this rare disease, but they had no problems and no symptoms. And so that is not a problem, was the thought. And we also saw by the patients that we were monitoring that their biochemical activity actually increased during pregnancy. 
not necessarily at the same time as having more symptoms. So since we think that the accumulation of heme precursors is a risk factor and they are pathogenic, we thought that there must be some kind of risk in all women with acute porphyria, regardless of symptoms. So we set out to to monitor these patients in some kind of standardized way and try to set standards of care. And we have the privilege since the, the laboratory and the all genetic diagnostics and biochemical follow-up is done at our lab at the Porphyria Center Sweden. So we could actually reach out and help monitor and locate women from all over the country with acute porphyria. And in that way, we got experience from quite a large number of individuals, I should say. And then we proceeded to try to sort our findings and get to a consensus for standards of care. And we, we think we have that now and we share it with our colleagues nationally. Before you move on, can I just clarify, does that mean that if you had a patient who had a genetic diagnosis having never been symptomatic, you would include them within your cohort because of the risk they might have a problem in, in pregnancy? Th- that is correct, yeah. Because obviously that's one of the challenges we see with this condition is that people will get genetic diagnoses having never had symptoms, especially in an era where you can go and get yourself testing on a kind of cascade basis or even just kind of you just want to know what's wrong with you. So this is data that is relevant to anyone with a gene change associated with an acute porphyria. Exactly. If you have a gene change that is known to be pathogenic, not just a variant that's unknown, and especially like the Swedish founder mutation, which is a stop code on it's known to be pathogenic, then you have porphyria, whether you're going to get symptoms or not. We cannot tell in advance. We know that if you're female, that risk is higher. It's a different discussion, I guess. But if you've got relatives that have symptomatic disease, that increases your risk. And if you have biochemical activity, and see, that's the thing. You can have high ALA and PBG, those markers that we monitor, and not have symptoms yet. But it is a sign that the disease is active and that it merits greater monitoring. And unless you check, then you don't know that. Because it is, with today's knowledge, not possible to predict who is going to get symptomatic disease or not. And because there are some recommendations that are for all porphyria patients, like if you've got the gene, for instance, you should avoid medication that could trigger your porphyria. And that is regardless if you have symptoms or not which is actually the reason we recommend screening for all first-degree relatives or people with acute porphyria, preferably before puberty, actually. And another thing is that there is an increased risk for primary hepatocellular cancer, and we, we screen all patients with this gene variations after the age of 50. It's a different discussion, but yeah, that's the intricacy with acute porphyria is you, you have a risk, and that risk is there whether you have symptoms or not. And the same applies with pregnancies as it is right now. We cannot say if you're going to be one of the lucky women that will have no risks with your porphyria during pregnancy, which is why we recommend monitoring. Okay. Sorry to interrupt you. Thank you for for clearing that up so nicely. So what did you find in these porphyria pregnancies? And I guess also what differences perhaps didn't you see that you might have expected to see? Um, What we knew from previous knowledge and experience and previously published data is that the group of people with acute hepatic porphyria seems to have a generally increased risk for hypertensive disease. And it's interesting, it's not cardiovascular disease. They don't have a high risk for acute myocardial infarction, but there is a high risk for hypertensive disease, possibly connected to kidney disease. It's still not completely clarified. So we saw that 
I'm actually pretty sure it has not been described before, but we were not surprised to see a higher risk for pregnancy-related hypertensive disease in women with acute porphyria. Uh, it had been our experience empirically that they have a higher risk for preeclampsia, and we could actually see in this, because I should say what the unique thing we could do is we, we took the Swedish porphyria register, which includes all patients diagnosed with porphyria in Sweden, and combined it with data from the Swedish medical birth registers, Sweden loves registers. So we combined those two so we could actually see all women with porphyria that had been pregnant, given birth during a period of time and the complications. So we could see a greater risk of hypertensive disease. And that is, I mean, that's hands on. You can give advice about that and, and monitoring so that you catch it early. What we did not expect that we saw was an increased risk for gestational diabetes. And there are connections between glycose and heme turnover. And that's just something I don't even want to speculate about. It was interesting and we need to look more closely to that. And then um, we saw a risk for infants being born SGA or small for gestational age. And that has been described by other colleagues in Norway for another type of porphyria, actually, not acute hepatic porphyria. And there is one possible explanation for that that we think is quite plausible and that is those heme precursors, they can accumulate in the placenta. So it could theoretically be a problem. And what we didn't see, there are other publications that suggest increased risk for miscarriage, but we do not see that. And the heme precursor accumulation in interfering with placenta has been the theory for these previous findings of miscarriage. But... Yeah, we did not see that. And one explanation could be that these studies are older and hopefully prenatal care and porphyria monitoring is better now, but that's only speculation. I don't know. I was, I was going to say, I mean, how did your findings compare to other people? You, you mentioned sort of anecdotally, there were families who were afraid to get pregnant because of very adverse pregnancy outcomes. Mm -hmm. Is it something that you're able to say from this, you can be obviously more reassuring to your families? Absolutely. Yeah. There are published reports from the 50s and there was a mortality of up to 40% and large numbers of porphyria-related manifestations on the porphyria pregnancies that were published. But of course, these reports focused on the symptomatic patients and the, and the patients that were actually sick. And of course, all the asymptomatic women, they would fly under the radar and not get included in those reports. And as I mentioned before, there's this founder effect up in northern Sweden. And, and in some places in northern Sweden, there's one out of 50 in the population that have the porphyria trait. It's that common. And this high prevalence is proof that the condition is not prohibiting to pregnancy in childbirth, obviously. And then from being very scared in those reports and telling women with porphyria that they should abstain from having children. And I, I personally have met patients who were told that, okay, your sister can have a child because she doesn't have this trait, but you should not have any children. But then because it went so well for the ones that did have children, then in the, in the 90s, there were reports of low mortality, no morbidity in the developed world, I should add. Then it was considered that, okay, porphyria is not a problem. The most recent register study that we can compare ourselves to was published 10 years ago by our colleagues in Bergen in Norway. It had a smaller number of women with acute porphyria, and they saw a higher risk of prenatal death in, in primigravids. I can't say I have seen that or have a feeling that this is true in the patients we have been following. 
But I mean, I'm convinced that in countries where there's a different a level of antenatal care, that the mortality is probably still a problem there. I don't know that, but I think that's how it is. Because I have seen how sick uh, women with porphyria can be if they are sick because of their porphyria and don't get adequate help. But there are many women with acute porphyria that will have fairly uncomplicated pregnancies. But we do see those complications like preeclampsia and hypertension. And um, there are a few, fortunately, few cases still where acute porphyria develops into something very, very serious and life-threatening during pregnancy. And it's good to be prepared. I don't know if it came up in your work. We obviously, there's been some talk around the acute management of porphyrias with, I think, giving heme in or, or more recently, I think, givoseran. Did you end up seeing any use of that in pregnancies? Because I imagine it's a drug that doesn't have any safety data. Um, when it comes to heme or normosang, which is the suggested treatment for an acute attack, it has been since it was introduced in the 80s. It is true that hemin has no official safety data for, for pregnancy. Interestingly enough, there was a case in the 90s, I think, in a different country where the need to give hemin came up during pregnancy and the patient was recommended to terminate the pregnancy. And there was a big reaction in the porphyria community about that because that recommendation was completely wrong. We have been administering hemin in women with porphyria that are pregnant Time and again, and it's not a problem. And we've even had one patient that had to have prophylactic, like repeated doses of hemine during her pregnancy because she was so very affected by her porphyria. And it was a difficult pregnancy, but it went fine. And, and hemine did not cause any accumulation of iron in the child or any adverse effects, actually. When it comes to give us iron, it's a different story. It is still strictly not recommended during pregnancy. So we cannot give givosiron in pregnancy. And uh, I think it's going to be like that for some time. Like the way givosiron works, I would not want to give it to a pregnant woman. Okay. So I just thought I'd ask. I keep hearing about these things when I do podcasts, but clearly I don't manage pregnancies. Yeah, no, I actually got an email from a colleague in New Zealand about this, about givosiron and pregnancy. Uh, the question being a person wanting to become pregnant and being treated with givosiron, what do we do with the givosiron? And you have to stop the treatment and actually be without for at least a minimum of three months, preferably six months before pregnancy is attempted. Since we're into this path, we've had two women on givosiron that wanted to get pregnant and stop treatment and both got pregnant three months post givosiron. Sorry to take you off on a tangent, but it's these things are interesting and it's fascinating hearing you talk. Just to come back, I suppose, to your paper, you've saw this increased risk of hypertension, gestational diabetes and, and reduced fetal growth. Is it a question that we just need to advise that these have surveilled for in pregnancy or does your work suggest that these can be prevented? Um, as far as prevention, what we advise is to avoid the so-called triggering factors for porphyria which is what our patients should know from the time they got their diagnosis. But as you mentioned, one of the things that we make sure and that we recommend is because many of these women would have been asymptomatic and maybe even have forgotten that they've got this condition is to have a, a sit down and just go through the basics of porphyria. So all medications should be checked for porphyrogenicity. There are things that you can take, substances that can trigger porphyria attack. 
also smoking and alcohol, which of course are not good for pregnant women anyway, but but they also are porphyria triggering factors. And uh, since um, a state of catabolism is something that can trigger a porphyria attack, good nutrition and balanced nutrition with, with carbohydrates, because caloric deprivation is different between us, some can tolerate more than others, but the general thing is make sure you don't forget to eat which comes back to the fact that we, of course, recommend greater vigilance with hyperemesis because that is something that could trigger an attack because if they can't keep down any food, then they get carbolic. So we, we think that all women with acute porphyria should sit down with a specialist and just, just we make sure that we're on the same page when it comes. What is this diagnosis? What does it mean for me? And if I get pregnant or now that I'm pregnant, what should I do? And then because we don't have... And it's the case for most specialists that work with porphyrias. We unfortunately don't have all the women here with us in our town or in our vicinity. And the maternity units may be somewhere else outside our hospital that the patient should inform their maternity unit about this diagnosis and refer them to us. They should be vigilant about porphyria-related symptoms, any pain, any anything that could be porphyria and just be quick to do biochemical assessment and be in touch with the porphyria center. And our role is to be available and collaborate with midwives and obstetricians and anesthesiologists. So we recommend simple things like an additional ultrasound. In Sweden, you get one ultrasound week 18 if it's a healthy pregnancy. Otherwise, we recommend at least one more to check fetal growth around week 32. And then we recommend weekly blood pressure assessments after week 24 just to catch pregnancy-related hypertensive disease and treat it early on. I mean, that's really useful to know. I suppose the other thing I, I wanted to ask about is it sounds like in Sweden, people are very well aware of porphyria because of this founder variant. But given there are diagnostic challenges in this condition, and it's an important differential in recurrent abdominal pain, the other thing that obstetricians do is gynecology. They will tend to see lots of women with recurrent abdominal pain. This is obviously an important differential they need to be aware of, isn't it? Absolutely. Our typical patient, when we teach medical students or, or junior doctors, when should like the porphyria sign light up in your brain as a young woman with recurrent abdominal pain, when other differential diagnoses have been excluded. And of course, this fits the description of many patients in obstetrics and gynecology. And the additional thing with gynecology is that because it's a theory, we can't exactly explain how, but it seems that hormonal fluctuations have an important role in the pathogenesis. So obviously, administration of hormones such as oral contraceptives or IVF, they can be very porphyrinogenic. Or after a medical abortion, when you also administer large doses of progesterone. So women with acute porphyria that's latent, they risk getting the first manifestation when being treated by a gynecologist, starting oral contraceptives or other treatments. And then, of course, these terrible mortality rates and the and the horrible case reports from the 50s, they, they seem to be a thing of the past here in, in the developed world. But there are still women out there that have acute porphyria, maybe not aware of it, and it hasn't been talked of in the family. We, we have these cases still. Not everybody has good knowledge about their family history, and they will experience a worsening of that condition during pregnancy. So, yes. It's good if our colleagues at obstetrics and gynecology are aware of this group of diseases because there's a risk they will encounter them. They will be the first ones to stumble over 
a porphyria patient that no one else has seen. Excellent. We often try to encourage our, our peers and colleagues to think metabolic and consider these things in, in the differential because, you know, they do crop up even if they're rare. Um, it has been fascinating to hear you talk about your paper, Daphne. If people would like to read your work, please click the link in the podcast description or you can go to the journal web pages and search for maternal and fetal outcomes in acute hepatic porphyria. And you can also listen to our other podcasts on both key terms and definitions in, in porphyria and also diagnostic algorithms and outcome measures as well. Daphne, thank you again for your time this morning. Yeah, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.